Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome everybody to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan and I'm really excited uh, for today as I'm usually excited for Sundays, but today is especially, you know, uh, prescient. Um, Yeah, it's good. It's good. Today we are celebrating the idea of love. We're looking at um, the love of God that's embodied in Jesus. Um, So a little bit of a backstory before I launch in, you know, I I try to get some of my ideas down a little bit early. And so several weeks ago, I was kind of composing this sermon that I was really excited about. And we were going to talk about the solstice and we were going to talk about Celtic Christianity and Yule Logs and Light and John chapter 4 and all this. Um, And then there's a couple of things that happened in the past like week and a half um, that I really felt like the Lord was leading us in a different course. And, you know, I'm, I'm telling you this because it's just... It's an example of what I'm hoping is shifting in our community, that we're learning to be more obedient, to listen to him where he's taking us. And that sermon was going to be really, really good. You know, I don't want to rob you of it, uh, but I think the Lord has something different for us. And I had a really powerful conversation with a friend uh, last Saturday night uh, that just really just stuck with me even when I woke up last Sunday morning and I was jotting myself some notes and I talked to a couple people about it. Um, and then Garrett Callahan actually sent me just some of the things like, hey, the Lord's speaking to me about this, uh, you know, this idea for, for uh, what the Christmas story really means. And it was all these pieces coming together. And it's like, okay, Lord, I get it. Like, this is where we're going to go. Um, and this is why this is, will probably be pretty emotional for me. Maybe. I, I'm not going to give you too much. Y'all know me. Y'all know I keep it, keep it, keep it together. Um, sometimes somebody speaks out of, you know, something like, you know, 20 years ago, this the Lord gave me this thing. And sometimes you speak out of something when you're in the middle of it. I don't think you have to have mastery of something before you can teach it. Amen? Sometimes it's like we're on a journey together. And it's like, I don't even know what this means. Right? But that's what prophetic words are. It's like, here's what the Lord's saying. No idea what this looks like, but we're going to figure it out together. Um, And so today we're going to be looking at the idea of Advent and love Um, and Jesus coming to us as God's rescue project for the world. And I want to kind of tie together these main themes of love and light and presence. And so this is kind of where I want us to go today. In the Christmas story, we realize God gives us something better than answers. He gives us the light of his loving presence. We're going to talk about what is presence. We're going to talk about why are we addicted to the need for answers and explanations and prescriptions, and why is that counterfeit to what we're actually being invited into in this Christmas season. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive right in. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you are with us. This is why we're here. Lord, there is no other valid reason for us to come together on this Sunday morning other than to be with you and to be with one another. And Lord, we bring with us into this space all of these maybe false expectations or counterfeit forms of intimacy, of presence, and we lay those at your feet right now, Lord. We don't want anything 
to come between us and you. There is nothing that can come between us and you. You are already here. You've already set the table for us, but you're inviting us into that moment to lay it all down, just to let go and to be with you. That's so hard for us, Lord. But God, I really know that you have something for us if we have the courage to do that. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I was meditating on the prophetic reading that we had for this Sunday from Isaiah chapter 9, this really beautiful imagery of, you know, the, 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 the people walking in a darkness have seen a great light, a light has dawned, and it, and it has this, you know, kind of dramatic culmination of speaking about what does it look like when God becomes king again, and all these amazing words that we attach to him, wonderful counselor and, and father and almighty God and all of these different things, and there's these two lines right in the middle that I felt were so poignant for where I want us to go today. In Isaiah 9, 5, and 6, it says, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I was meditating on that juxtaposition. If we can kind of read these as the way that we assume the world works and the kind of new world that God births right in our very midst. An alternative world, an alternative way of seeing all of creation, not least of which the human family. And as I began to meditate on it, I was thinking about this, this way of the warrior that's destined for burning and being done away with in order to create space for the way of the child and wondering, what exactly is that new way? What is it that we're leaving behind in order to take up something new within the kingdom of God? And I see in that image of the warrior the way that we normally assume life works, that we have these explanations and answers, who's in, who's out, who has power, who does not, who is worthy, who is not, and all of these different structures that we've created within the human family in order to kind of take power and, and protect ourselves and make sure that we're on the right side of history. And what we find in this prophecy from Isaiah is all of that is being thrown into the fire. All of that is being burned away. All of those standards that we have for one another and the ways that we interact with each other that kind of betray that warrior spirit, that warrior attitude, all of that is being thrown out to welcome in this new way, the way of a child that is being born, that is going to lead us into a new humanity, and that the government rests on the shoulders of a child, of an innocent and I think this maybe begs of us this really obvious question that perhaps because we're so close to the Christmas story, we can't always see it. Why did God come as a baby? Because that wasn't what everybody was expecting. 
Everybody was expecting a warrior king, someone who was going to rise up and to lead this revolution, who was going to take up the sword and and amass an army and go and conquer the world and establish this new world order. And that's not what happened. And in fact, that's what we see time and again in the story of Jesus is Jesus continues to bump up against these expectations of Israel, the people that held the story, because they were looking for a warrior king, but God offered us something very different. Why did God bring to us a baby? So we're going to look at Matthew 18, beginning in the 18th verse, or Matthew 1, beginning in the 18th verse, and this is the story of that baby coming to us. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So already we see there's kind of a structure, a moral structure to society, and there are rules and regulations and expectations. And so Joseph recognizes this isn't the way that things are supposed to be, so I need to kind of do whatever I need to do in order to protect my family's integrity. And so he has this intention to divorce Mary, but because he cares about her, he wants to do it quietly. Because for her to be rejected publicly means that she's rejected from society. She's used and damaged goods. She has no inherent value. And so the kindness of Joseph is to at least seek to follow the rules out of a place of kindness for her to somewhat protect her integrity. And so he has this intention to divorce But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus or Yeshua, or another translation might be Joshua, means that Yah saves, the Lord saves. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And this is the fascinating thing. You know, we've been looking at all of these different characters in the story that all of it's kind of happening around this baby. We looked at um, Mary singing out of the joy of realizing that God had chosen her. We've looked at the shepherds receiving this incredible vision from the angels to go and to find the Messiah that's been born in Bethlehem. We've looked at the magi or the wise men that are coming from afar to kind of give uh, homage Uh, to the coming of the the Christ King. So we've looked at all these other people around the baby, and now we're looking at Joseph. And one thing stands out to me that's so, um, uh, so profound is that none of them are receiving the answers. None of them are receiving an explanation for what's happening. They're receiving a prophetic word. They're receiving these names. They're receiving these promises. But there's no step-by-step execution for this thing. And you can imagine, as Joseph, he probably had a lot of questions. Okay, first of all, what? (laughs) Like, what what is this? What do you mean? 
Like, I'm still supposed to take her, and she's been, you know, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, okay, heard that one. You know, it's weird. Like, it's weird. And we go, no, 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 this doesn't make sense. This doesn't fit in my matrix of how the world is supposed to work. But Joseph doesn't do that. But Mary doesn't do that. But the shepherds don't do that. But the magi don't do that. They receive the word of the Lord and they celebrate it with joy, and they hold it close. And I think this is what's so profound to me about God sending us a baby instead of sending us a warrior king. No one ever got any answers in the nativity because babies don't explain stuff. Babies don't give us answers. But here's what babies do. Babies arrest the energy in the room. Babies carry with them this authority that we do not understand. I think it was last Sunday, Patrick and Victoria were leading worship and they'd asked somebody to, to watch Selah. And how old is Selah now? Seven months. What a beautiful age, seven months. She's just starting to play with things and stand and all this. And uh, so I love babies. I said, okay, yeah, I'll show up early and I'll play with her. And I came in and Daniel was like lying on the floor with her here. And it was really cute. And I took a picture of Daniel with a baby and I sent it to Kaylee. And like, <laughs> are your ovaries glowing yet? <laughs> 2019, baby. I'm just kidding. I think, I think a puppy is the next stage. <laughs> but what I, what I noticed, like, when Daniel's holding this baby, when I'm holding this baby, is like, Selah is the most powerful person in the room. At seven months old, she's the most powerful person in the room. Every, like, nobody ignores a baby, right? And you usually do one of two things. Either you're drawn into a baby or you're actually kind of freaked out and you back away. But nobody's unaffected by a baby being in the room because babies shift our values and babies confront us with the power of innocence. And I think it's the power and authority of innocence that's what either draws us into babies or actually makes us step away from them in horror because we have this fear of when we witness innocence purity, the unblemished image of a child. We don't know necessarily what to do with that. And so I think God chose to come to us not in a warrior king, but in a baby because God recognizes this deeper need in us that the, he can only find authority through being a baby first. And it's this need that's within us that we do not recognize within ourselves because we've bought into this idea that life is about finding answers and explanations. The deepest desire in the human soul is not merely understanding its presence. We think if we, if we could just understand it, if we had enough information, if we could read enough books, if we could develop the right theories, if we could understand ourselves and other people, then maybe we will find the answers to life's biggest questions. But we've bought into this shallow form of understanding that does not actually get to the deepest need within the human soul that what we are actually crying out for is a loving presence, 
Because understanding has to do with control. When we say that we need to understand something, what we're really saying is, I need to control this thing. I need to control this relationship. I need to control my environment. I need to control my own life. If I just had enough understanding, if I had enough information, if I had enough explanations for the thing, then maybe I can survive. And when we pursue understanding, we're trying to control the narrative of our own lives. Yet we continually crumble because we realize there is no amount of understanding that we can obtain within this life that will keep our fears at bay. But when we realize that it's never about understanding, it's about presence, we realize our values are in a dramatically different place. Presence is not about controlling the narrative. Presence is not about controlling the relationships about, around us. Presence is about abiding. It's about relinquishment. It's about giving ourselves over to the moment. Presence is about submission to what's happening around us, trusting in the relational strength and authority that is offered to us in the moment. I've heard it said many times that information is not transformation. And I would take that a step further to say information is not intimacy. Information is not intimacy. Knowing a lot of stuff about someone does not mean that you are intimate with them. Being able to explain why someone does what they do does not mean that you are any closer to loving them or being loved by them. And yet we settle for thinking. If I can control the narrative through understanding it, then maybe I can protect myself or I can control this other person. And so I want us to take a moment, and yes, we're in some strange territory for Christmas, and that's okay. This is what the Lord has for us. But we're gonna take a moment and just reflect, and I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you in this question, when was a time of relational brokenness where I sought to control rather than love? When was a time of relational brokenness? Maybe it was even in the past week, month, year, or whatever, where I chose to try to gain explanations and understanding so that I could control a relationship instead of giving myself over to trust in the presence of the other. So I'm going to pray, and we're just going to reflect for 30 seconds. God, we recognize that you came in the form of a baby because a baby is pure presence. There are no explanations there. There is no understanding. There is only the presence and authority that is found in innocence, in being, pure being, over and above doing, acting, thinking, feeling, whatever it might be. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that right now, would you reveal to each one of us a moment in our recent past where we have chosen counterfeit intimacy by trying to find explanations and answers to control the narrative instead of trusting and the presence that's offered to us in that moment. There was a dramatic shift in my understanding of what it means to be a pastor. A lot of times I get, I'm sitting with somebody drinking coffee or I get a text message or an email and there's a theological question that's attached to that. And a lot of times it's about the character of God or it's about the afterlife or whatever it might be. And very foolishly early on in my job, I answered those questions. 
because I thought that's what y'all were asking. I thought y'all wanted to know about eternal torment versus annihilationism versus universalism. I thought you wanted to know about uh, propitiation of sins or whatever it might be. And I kept answering those questions and then realizing like that didn't seem to be doing anything for you for some reason. Like just knowing what exactly the Greek term in Matthew 18 means in the context of community and accountability doesn't seem to do anything for you. And I was kind of getting frustrated with this because people were asking me questions and I was answering out of this deep and profound knowledge that I have amassed with my art education degree and three years of teaching high school and reading a whole lot of N.T. Wright. And I just felt like I was falling short in my, <laughs> I felt like I was falling short in my job. And there came this shift for me when I realized, oh, that's not the question that's being asked. Like, when people ask me about the Bible, or they ask me about God, or they ask me how these things are supposed to work or what these words mean, that's not really the question. That's the question that hovers on the surface, but the deeper question is this, am I okay? Am I lovable? Do I matter? And I realized, not only was that the question that I am asked to answer, before any of the other stuff, and the other stuff is tremendously important, but it's not the real thing, that my job was to actually answer those questions, but in turn realizing that the way in which I was answering them betrayed the fact that I was not answering those questions for myself, that I thought it was about how much I know, how much I can explain stuff that makes me a good Christian, that makes me a good pastor. And so I've begun this journey of trying to shift my emphasis in my job to say, yes, theology is tremendously important. The Bible is tremendously important. But if we do not answer those core questions of the human experience about being okay, about desiring presence, none of the rest of it actually matters. Because there's a word for this power that comes out of presence, out of pure being. And it's the word solidarity that what we find in God coming to us as a human being, starting his life as a baby, living the kind of life that we are to live, is that God is offering us his solidarity, that God comes alongside of us and says, me too. That it's the steadfast, loving presence of God that actually answers the deepest questions of the human soul. And is that not all a baby can offer us? Babies cannot offer us answers and explanations, and they can't exegete scripture, but they can offer us presence. And when I kind of bring this back to the heart of the Father, the two most elemental truths about God are the hardest for us to accept, that he is with us and that he turns curses into blessings. This is why I keep harping on about this. This is why I want you to memorize these two truths about God because if we do not understand these two things about God, none of the rest of it matters because it's the, the foundational 
core identity of God that begins to answer the foundational core questions of what it means to be a human being. And I think we keep reaching for these lesser gods that offer us the cheap explanations to help us survive in the moment, to help us control the narrative, to help us control relationships, to help us control our life story. And we, we choose into those lesser gods instead of resting into the eternal presence of Emmanuel, the God who is with us, the God who moves through history alongside of us, the God who offers us his solidarity, the God who says to us, me too, when we are in the, the, the highest, most joyous, excitable moments of our lives and when we are in the deepest, darkest pits of existential despair, to trust that in that place as well, God is with us. And do we not see this in the life of Jesus time and again, that he subverted people's need for a quick explanation to life or what God was like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the rich people, the poor people, all of these people, they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, give us an explanation. Give us a game plan. What do I have to do? What do I have to achieve? What's the way in which I can just kind of write off this group of people, whatever it might be? And Jesus' answers more often subverted the need for the cheap explanation to open people up to deep abiding in the presence of God. This is what's so powerful about the Christmas story. Because how we think, feel, and act can open us up to receive a loving presence or it can get in the way. And by the way, that's your personality, how you think, feel, and act. That's what your personality is. So your personality can lead you into loving presence with God and with other people, or your personality can actually get in the way and prevent you from receiving that which you desire most. And I've had to come to recognize this as someone who's passionate about personality. And, you know, I, I, I teach the Enneagram for years, and we've been doing workshops and small groups, and I've used this with so many of you in spiritual direction but I've had to recognize that even that information, being able to explain why I am the way that I am or being able to explain why you are the way that you are, that is not intimacy. And in fact, that be can become damaging to intimacy and relationship. When I use the information that I have to actually push us apart. Because we can write off groups of people with information, with our explanations. The thing that I'm walking through right now is that at the core of who I am, I believe that logic is most important. It's the most important thing. If you can just be logical, so what you need to do is you need to tuck away all your feelings. Some of you have sat with me and you've experienced this, you know. If I just tuck away all my feelings because they're going to betray me, and if I can just find out this logical structure, this theory of everything that explains the world, then I can just keep coming back to that. But I, what I've realized in some of the most deep, loving relationships in my life, that when I present logic, I'm actually presenting something in place of my true self. I'm not offering my presence. I'm offering answers. I'm offering explanations. 
You know, we live in this era of mass information. We call it the information age. So much is available to us. But I think pop psychology has ruined us for connection because we're all experts. We all have the right words to explain away, to give, you know, excuses for why we are the way that we are and to give indictments about why other people are the way that they are. And we do not realize that explanations are poor substitutes for real intimacy. This was a little aside. I didn't even know if I wanted to put this in there, but I really feel this strongly. Our obsessive pursuit of self-improvement can often reveal that we do not consider ourselves worthy of a loving presence as we are now. It's good, and it freaking hurts. (laughs) Let's be honest. We, We, if we are so obsessed with growing and changing and, and, and achieving and doing all these different things, what we are saying at the core is, I am not okay and I am not worthy of being loved the way that I am right now. I need to edit myself. I need to add something onto who I am currently in order to be lovable, in order to find the thing that I know at the, I want at the deepest part of myself. And when we choose that counterfeit intimacy, of explanations and answers. It prevents us from receiving that. But one of my favorite images actually comes from Ian Cron. He's a priest up in Nashville, and he says, God is the gaze of the mother upon the sleeping infant. God is the gaze of the mother upon the sleeping infant. This is my baby picture. You can see I was terribly concerned. All of my baby pictures are actually, I'm very concerned. I don't know why. I was going to show you a picture of my brother Scott, who's here with us today. Woo! Can we give him a round of applause? He did it. Uh, but the ongoing joke in our family is there are no pictures of Scott when he was a baby. I was the first, so there's lots of pictures of me, you know. Everyone's, ooh, ah, really cute baby. And then Scott's like, oh, okay, that's fine. He was really cute, by the way, too. It's a shame that there are not enough pictures. And then there's lots of pictures of what? Oh, sorry, he is really cute. My bad. Is really cute. He's the cute one in the family. Um, And then there's lots of pictures of Joel because Joel was born in this country and we had to take lots of pictures to send them back to the grandparents because it's 1990 and we didn't have email and whatnot. So there aren't any pictures of Scott, even though he's a really cute baby. But this is is me. And I, I, I feel that so much. Like that, when I come back to that image that God is the gaze of the mother upon the sleeping infant. That that infant has not done anything to earn that gaze. That infant cannot offer anything meaningful back to the mother. That, that infant is just pure being. And yet the mother smiles upon the baby as the baby sleeps. And that, is that not the core desire of our hearts, to receive the love of God and to recognize that we are that sleeping infant? And so I want to take a second reflection And I want you to come before the Lord and to ask this, what does it take for me to rest in God's unconditional affection and adoration? Do I fight against that image? Do we say, no, 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 that's too good to be true, that I can just rest in the presence of God. I've got to achieve. I've got to have some answers for him. I've got to be able to explain stuff. I've got to be able to show him all of my uh, merits. Or can you rest in his presence, 
can you receive his unconditional affection and adoration? So let's pray again and just ask the Lord to speak to us. God, it's true that not only are you our father, but you are also our mother. And just as many of us have been wounded by the image of father, many of us have been wounded by the image of mother because even that image comes with it, this conditional sense of love, this form of obligation, of performing, of excellence. And so Lord, I pray that even now, through your Holy Spirit, you would be scrubbing clean those images of father and mother. Thank you, Lord. And God, I, I pray that for each of your dear one here, your children, show us a picture of you gazing upon us lovingly with affection and adoration that we cannot earn, that we cannot run from, that we might just rest in your presence. And so here's the profound truth that maybe feels disappointing at first, but actually is the path to freedom for so many of us in how we have been taught to experience our faith. God's presence doesn't answer every question that life brings to us, but it does light the way for us to love and to be loved. Sometimes we go to uh, certain uh, craft stores, craft mega stores, and we see these lovely signs and they say, Jesus is the answer. And I've always said, that's technically true. But that answer gives me three or maybe four questions. What do you mean by Jesus? What do you mean by is? What do you mean by the? And what do you mean by answer? Because it's not about answers. It's not about explanations. Because the truth is every answer leads us to more questions and it's this nonstop cycle. And if we don't give ourselves to that cycle, we will never be satisfied. We will never be content. But is this not what we have seen to be so true in the story of those who received the Christ child 2,000 years ago, that God's presence doesn't answer every question that life brings along? But God's presence does light the way for us to love and to be loved. And these are the Advent truths that we've been looking at in this season, that first of all, we look at hope, hope for a better world, believing that the story is going to continue to move forward because God is with us. Peace, that we can have togetherness, that we can have wholeness, not just between us and God, but between us and one another. As Stacy was teaching us, joy, as Cole brought to us recently, that joy is this awe and wonder at the gift of life itself in its highest highs and its lowest lows. And then finally today with love, that the whole thing, the whole thing is about presence. The whole thing is about withness. I believe God's presence isn't just a nice thing, it's the only thing. And when we learn to practice the presence of God, when we learn to receive his loving presence that lights the way for us to be loved, that also begins to light the way for us to love other people. 
And so when we looked at hope, we read this song that kind of leaps out of Mary's soul as she receives the Christ child. And I want to look at a little piece of another song. This is Zechariah's song. So John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who's six months older, Zechariah is his father, and he's being given this prophecy about how he's going to receive the one who's going to light the way for the new king to come. And at the end of this this song that Zechariah sings, he's singing over his unborn uh, child, and he says this, And you, my child, speaking to John, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is the, the, the pronouncement over John the Baptist, that this is his vocation, this is his call in life. And I want to challenge you today that it is also your vocation. You are called to take up the mantle of John the Baptist, who is to go on before the Lord to prepare the way for his coming. Because of the tender mercy of God, you are invited to go ahead to reveal the light of God's love wherever you go. Not because you have answers, not because you have explanations, not because you are in control of your own life, but because you have witnessed the light of God shining in the dark places in your own story. And you are called to guide feet under the path of peace. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world, so let your light shine. From a more modern reference, the the philosopher Cornel West, he says, love is the steadfast commitment to the well-being of other people. Now that is a very, very good interpretation of what love is. It's not, it, it doesn't encapsulate love, but it's a very good starting point. Love is the steadfast commitment to the well-being of other people. Or we might say the steadfast withness and forness. Justice is what love looks like in public. Tenderness is what love feels like in private. Your ability to understand other people. Your ability to be understood by people and your ability to love and be loved are not the same thing. Your capacity to be understood by other people is not the gateway for you to receive love. And your ability to understand other people and to explain other people does not prevent you from loving them. We can love in the midst of not understanding one another because love is the higher call. Love is more profound than anything that we can put in its place. I'm tired of hearing people say, especially in romantic relationships, well, love isn't everything. There's this other stuff. And I'm like, that's tragic. (laughs) Love is everything. It's the same when people say, well, yes, the mercy of God, but also his justice. No! Justice is the love of God in action. It's all love. 
the whole thing. It's all love. The, the, the entire scripture culminates in this powerful image in 1 John where he says, God is love. Everything else is secondary. Everything else flows out of the love of God. There is no aside to love. Roberta's coming out. Oh, Rhonda, sorry. Apparently I have a little black woman that lives inside of me called Rhonda. I think it's Cole as Roberta, right? <laughs> Did you know that? Okay. This is what the whole story is about. God is with us, and he will never, ever forsake us. Who can separate us from the love of God? And we give all of these excuses, right? Who can separate us from the love of God? And we go, oh, we can separate ourselves. No, we can't. We cannot separate ourselves from the love of God. We can't do it. You can ignore it. You can't separate yourself from the love of God because God is love. This is why light is the most profound image used time and again in Scripture to speak of God because there's nothing that can counteract light. You can't do it. Christmas reminds us that the whole story is moving from darkness to light. The universe only has one direction, from darkness to light. You see, in John's gospel, he tells the Christmas story, but in a dramatically different way. He doesn't go into babies and mangers and, and no, you know, no straw and there's shepherds. He doesn't tell that story. He tells it kind of from this cosmic perspective. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in, with God in the beginning. And he kind of, in the middle of this poem, he says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or in another translation, it says, the darkness cannot comprehend it. The darkness has no understanding when it comes to the light of love. The darkness cannot come up with explanations that would stand up against the light of love. In the Advent season, this is why we light these candles one after the other, because the light is slowly building through this season an expectation that we are here to allow the light of God's love as revealed in Jesus to shine upon us in ways that we do not understand. And it is not our responsibility to understand it in order to be able to receive it. We do not have to understand it in order to receive it. You do not have to understand everything in order to receive love, and you do not have to understand everything in order to give love. The darkness cannot overcome it. And this is the second word that I felt from the Lord that I had hesitation to speak, but I think it is so important for many of you this morning because you need this, because you have come in here in great darkness, because you have come in here you've come in here feeling the immense darkness of what it means to be alive, and you feel alone, and you're overcoming great tragedy, you're waiting for something to happen and it hasn't happened yet. I want to bless that. 
that darkness can be the pregnant expectation for the birth of light. This is what they were all waiting for in the Christmas story. 400 years of darkness waiting in hopeful expectation that God was going to fulfill his promises. And many of you right now are waiting in darkness. But you're waiting with this pregnant, and I use that word very specifically, you are waiting in pregnant expectation for the birth of light in your story. Be patient. Bless it. Do not rush the darkness. Do not try to control it. Do not try to explain it away. Do not try to rush through it in order to get to the light because the light is something, not something that you can manufacture. The light is only something that you can receive. And if you're here this morning and you feel like you're in the dark, trust that that is not a step backwards in your story because the story only has one direction. It only moves from darkness to light. Trust that maybe you are in a place waiting for the light to break in, that there's more to go, that as a creation, you are profound, you are complex, you cannot be fixed overnight. You are too beautiful for that. And that there is more inside of you, there's more inside of all of us waiting to be revealed by the light, the light that illuminates where God has been this whole time, but maybe we were not aware of it. I want to invite you to stand with me. These are the questions that I have come to recognize when it comes to love, when it comes to conflict, when it comes to disconnection. Are we with one another? Are we for each other? Do we have hope that God, not us, but that God turns curses into blessings? Because if we cannot answer those questions, all the rest of it doesn't matter. All the five-step programs and the explanations, none of that stuff matters. If we cannot answer those questions, are we with one another and are we for one another? So that's what we're going to focus in on in just a moment. We're going to pray over each other. I want to invite you to turn to the person that's next to you. And I want you to lay hands on them. And I want you to pray God's a new awareness of God's loving presence in their lives. And I don't want you to close your eyes. Because closing your eyes, actually in the early church, was a sign of shame. I want you to look that person in the eyes. Because that's intimacy. And that's you offering your loving presence to them because you are the ambassador of light. You are the ambassador of God's loving presence. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna to turn to one another and pray for a new awareness of God's presence. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we testify to what is true, whether or not we feel it, that the darkness is turning to light. There is only one direction for the universe. There's only one direction for each of our stories that you are with us, that you are for us, and that you turn curses into blessings. All other promises hinge on these two truths. And Father, right now, would you use each one of us to be a beacon of light in the story of the person next to us?
that as we, as we look one another in the eyes, it is God looking back at us. As we gaze at one another, it is the mother gazing upon the sleeping infant with adoration and affection. That we can pray into the other person a new awareness of God's loving presence in this Christmas season. God, we give you permission to do as you see fit. May God be with you. Let's pray. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.